1: Hey, everyone. Welcome to the 425th episode of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich.
0: And I'm Tracy. Hello, y'all. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast.
1: As you guys will recall, by the end of the last episode, the Federals had successfully carried out their operation at Browns Ferry on the morning of October 27, 1863. By 10 a.m., a pontoon bridge spanned the Tennessee River there, protected by the men of Hazen's and Turchin's brigades, who were busy throwing up breastworks on the nearby hills.
0: The Browns Ferry operation had been carried out without a hitch. The Confederates picketing the riverbank had been driven off, all at the cost of only 38 federal casualties. A happy William Hazen strode along his lines, telling his men, we've knocked the cover off the cracker box.
1: And, indeed, they had. The success of the operation at Brown's Ferry meant that basic conditions were in place for restoring the flow of supplies to the Union troops holding Chattanooga just as soon as the wagons could be set rolling along the new Cracker Line. With their success at Brown's Ferry, things had taken a turn for the better for the besieged Yankees. But the issue now depended, on the Federal side, upon how quickly Hooker could arrive with his troops to keep the cracker line open, and, on the Confederate side, what Braxton Bragg would do to close it.
0: As y'all will recall, the Federal plan to open the cracker line not only called for part of the Chattanooga Garrison, in the form of Hazen's and Turchin's Brigades, to seize Brown's Ferry, but the plan also called for several divisions worth of federal troops, commanded by Joseph Hooker, to march over from northeast Alabama and secure the northern end of Lookout Valley to safeguard the new supply route.
1: As we talked about previously, after being detached from the Army of the Potomac and riding the rails south, Hooker and his troops had been twiddling their thumbs at Bridgeport in northeast Alabama, unable to complete their journey to Chattanooga. They couldn't complete the last leg of their journey because the precarious supply situation at Chattanooga meant that an extra 15,000 mouths to feed would have pushed the garrison right over the edge into outright starvation.
0: When Ulysses S. Grant and George Thomas let Hooker know about his part in the plan, Fighting Joe had hoped to have his men on the march by the morning of October twenty,
1: 20- And so, early on the morning of the 27th, while the Browns Ferry operation was going off without a hitch, Hooker, with two divisions of the 11th Corps and a single division of the 12th Corps, left Bridgeport, crossing the Tennessee River and marching northeastward through Hogjaw Valley along the main road to Chattanooga, where it paralleled the tracks of the Memphis and Charleston Railroad.
0: A bend of the Tennessee brought the river back into view on the column's left near the little trackside town of Shell Mound. The road continued upstream until near the mouth of Running Water Creek, where it veered southeastward into the gap where the creek had its source on the saddle between Raccoon Mountain on the north and Sand Mountain to the south.
1: High in the gap, near another trackside waypoint called Whiteside, the head of the column, the 11th Corps Division of Adolf von Steinwehr, halted and camped for the night. Bringing up the rear of the column, the 12th Corps Division of John Geary bedded down for the night in the open fields around Shell Mound.
0: At sunrise the next morning, October 28th, the Yankees were back on the road again, striding down the east side of Running Water Gap and into Lookout Valley. The scenery was awe-inspiring. The four-mile-wide valley lay between the towering heights of Lookout Mountain, 1,400 feet above the valley floor to the southeast, and Raccoon Mountain, nearly as high to the northwest.
1: But the Federal's appreciation for the grandeur of the scene was tempered by the rush of adrenaline that accompanied the threat of battle, because near the small village of Wahatchee, three miles from Brown's Ferry and the north end of the valley, The sound of musket fire reached the ears of the troops at the head of Hooker's Column.
0: The small hills that framed the landing at Browns Ferry were part of a chain of low hills, about 200 feet high, that ran along the middle of Lookout Valley, all the way to Wahatchee.
1: To the southeast of the hills, Lookout Creek flowed down to meet the Tennessee River, just above Browns Ferry. On the hill's northwest side, the road and railroad passed towards Browns Ferry and Chattanooga. On a couple of the hills nearest Wahatchee, Confederate Brigade Commander Vander Law had deployed some of his Alabamans as skirmishers, and these were the rebels who challenged Hooker's Federals. However, the Confederates were too few in number to actually stop the Yankees, and when von Steinwehr shook out a couple of regiments a line of battle, and sent them forward, the Alabamans had to beat a hasty retreat.
0: The Federals continued their march down the valley toward Browns Ferry and the river, but the Confederates weren't finished. At the point of Lookout Mountain were the rebel artillery batteries that looked down upon Chattanooga. Now, those guns were swung around to bear into Lookout Valley.
1: The range to Hooker's Federals was extreme, and the low hills between lookout and the road blocked the artillery's line of sight in places, but whenever they could, the rebel gunners got in some long-range shots at the marching Yankees as they moved along the valley floor. Though it produced few casualties, the experience of being the target of the rebel projectiles was anything but pleasant for the Federals as they hustled along the road. A flash and puff of smoke near the point of Lookout Mountain would be followed three or four seconds later by a distant boom, immediately followed by the screech of a shell in flight or the sight of a cannonball bounding along the ground. One of them skipped under the belly of Hooker's horse as he rode at the head of the column. That night, an 11th Corps soldier wrote in his diary, General Hooker rode right out and plain sighted the rebels, he seemed to show but little concern for the shells.
0: While fighting Joe Hooker could be certain of a large and admiring audience for his display of coolness under fire, for the rank-and-file Union soldiers, the Confederate shelling represented the threat of sudden death or wounding. The men just had to take it as they continued to tramp steadily down the road along the valley floor.
1: Some enterprising federal officer cast about for a way to take the men's minds off their predicament. Before long, orders rippled up and down the column, telling the color sergeants to unfurl each regiment's flags, and the drummer boys struck up an invigorating rolling and stuttering wave of sound as the men marched along with a new spring in their step. The men from the Army of the Potomac were marching to Chattanooga with their heads held high— telling the Confederates watching from the heights that, as one 11th Corps soldier put it, quote, we had come to stay.
0: As drums rattled and flags waved and cannon boomed, two spectators to the stirring scene down in Lookout Valley had a prime vantage point, but they weren't enjoying the show. From Sunset Rock, a prominent point on the western crest of Lookout Mountain, Braxton Bragg and James Longstreet viewed the spectacle with surprise and dismay.
1: Against all logic, Longstreet had been supremely unconcerned by the enemy moves. When the Yankees seized Brown's Ferry, Old Pete had avoided embarrassment by simply neglecting to inform Bragg of that development. Bragg, of course, found out about it anyway later that morning and was understandably furious. He fired off a message to Longstreet, saying, quote, The loss of our position on the left is almost vital, it involves the very existence of the enemy in Chattanooga. End quote. What, Bragg wanted to know, did Longstreet plan to do about it? Well, the answer was, precisely nothing.
0: To Bragg's utter astonishment, Longstreet assured him the Federal's lodgment at the northern end of Lookout Valley, at Brown's Ferry, was of no importance, and the Confederates' best course of action was to ignore it. True, Old Pete said, the enemy appeared to be working at, quote, shortening his line of communications, end quote, but that was a minor consideration.
1: Perhaps this was just Longstreet trying to cover his embarrassment for the disaster unfolding in Lookout Valley. If not, then he was the only man in either army who hadn't yet figured out what the Confederates were trying to accomplish by encamping in the vicinity of Chattanooga for the past month.
0: In any case, Longstreet told Bragg that he had figured out where the real threat lay. It was that Hooker's Federals were going to march southeast from Bridgeport, not northeast, and get behind him by way of a pass called Johnson's Crook. Therefore, Longstreet said, the goings-on at Browns Ferry could only be a diversion, and were best ignored.
1: Well. The picture painted by Longstreet was so absurd that Bragg was flummoxed, apparently assuming that old Pete must know what he was talking about, since it was unreasonable to think a general officer of Longstreet's experience could concoct anything half so ridiculous without having good reason to do so.
0: Bragg actually allowed Longstreet to draw him into a long and ludicrous discussion on the evening of the 27th regarding just how many men should be shifted southward to meet the imaginary federal threat at Johnson's Crook.
1: However, unlike Longstreet, Bragg hadn't completely lost touch with reality, and so when he left Longstreet at 11 o'clock that night, Bragg directed him to attack the enemy lodgment at Brown's Ferry if the threat from the south at Johnson's Crook failed to materialize.
0: But once he was back at his headquarters, Bragg's doubts about Longstreet's assessment of the situation continued to gnaw at him. So early the following morning, the morning of the 28th, he sent word for Longstreet to meet him up on Lookout Mountain to view the enemy lodgment at Browns Ferry and discuss the situation further.
2: Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Braxton Bragg arrived on Lookout Mountain shortly before 9 a.m. on the morning of October 28th, but James Longstreet was nowhere to be seen. Nothing seemed to be happening off to the south in the direction of Johnson's Crook, and certainly nothing was happening at Browns Ferry, Despite Bragg's orders that Longstreet was to swing into action there if nothing was going on at Johnson's crook.
0: In short order, a staff officer found Longstreet eating breakfast at his headquarters halfway down the mountain. There was nothing for Bragg to do but spin his wheels and wait for old Pete to make his way to the summit. Eventually, Longstreet showed up, and by all accounts, a rather unpleasant discussion ensued.
1: The tense exchange was interrupted by a courier who arrived to report that a strong federal column was pushing down Lookout Valley. As this incredible news sank in, Bragg was dumbfounded. After all, hadn't he ordered Longstreet to reconnoiter in that direction three days earlier?
0: If Longstreet had obeyed the order and had scouts out, the Confederates would have known about Hooker's approach. But, as we know, Old Pete chose to ignore Bragg's instructions, and so now the arrival on the scene of three divisions of Yankees came as an unpleasant surprise to Braxton Bragg.
1: The messenger suggested the two generals follow him over to Sunset Rock on the western crest of the mountain to see for themselves. They did, and thus gained their prime vantage point for the dramatic display of Hooker's long column marching down Lookout Valley with drums rattling and flags waving as the Confederate artillery took pot shots at them from afar.
0: As Hooker's Federals marched down Lookout Valley on October 28, completing their march from Bridgeport, they moved in two detachments. First came Oliver Otis Howard's 11th Corps troops, two divisions led by Von Steinwehr and Carl Schurz. Howard linked up with the force holding the bridgehead at Browns Ferry before he called a halt.
1: Then, at some distance behind Howard, was John Geary's small division from the 12th Corps. As you guys will recall, the 12th Corps was commanded by Henry Slocum, but because of the raid by Wheeler's Confederate cavalry, Slocum and some of his men had been assigned to guard the line of the Nashville and Chattanooga Railroad as it came down through Tennessee. Slocum was fine with this assignment because he didn't like Hooker, and hadn't been looking forward to serving in the field under Fighting Joe.
0: In any case, with nightfall approaching, Geary's part of Hooker's force halted, and along with a large number of the supply wagons that accompanied the column, went into camp at Wahatchee, three miles short of Browns Ferry.
1: Before departing Lookout Mountain and returning to his headquarters, a furious Braxton Bragg had instructed James Longstreet to launch an attack as soon as possible and clear Lookout Valley of the enemy, wiping out the Yankee lodgemen at Brown's Ferry and crushing this new force that had just arrived on the scene. Then, as the sunlight faded and there was an obvious separation in the Federal Column, that is, between Howard's Eleventh Corps troops and Geary's Twelfth Corps Division, Longstreet sensed an opportunity
0: Detachments had reduced Geary's division to a mere six regiments and a battery of artillery, numbering about 1,600 men in all, and his relative weakness was clearly visible to the Confederates on Lookout Mountain. To overwhelm this part of the Yankee column after it halted at Wahatchee, Longstreet proposed that rarest of Civil War actions, a night attack.
1: As we talked about recently with Claiborne's night attack at Chickamauga, Civil War generals rarely resorted to this type of action because they were wicked hard to pull off successfully. When a formation attacked at night, the usual result was a rapid deterioration of command and control. The very fact the attack was taking place at night made it incredibly difficult for officers to steer their regiments and brigades where they needed to go, resulting in lines of battle stumbling around in the darkness and confusion. And when contact was made with another unit, there were often moments of paralyzing indecision when it was unclear if the troops were friend or foe. In fact, one of the great dangers of a night attack, more so for the attackers since they were the ones moving about in the darkness, was units from the same army firing on one another. At any rate, because command and control quickly broke down, and because of the danger of friendly fire, Civil War generals tended to shy away from making night attacks. Nevertheless, James Longstreet made the decision to strike a blow at the Yankees down in Lookout Valley on the night of October twenty-eighth, to try to take advantage of the opportunity presented by the weakness of Geary's division and its isolation where it had stopped at Wahatchee.
0: For his part, Braxton Bragg expected Longstreet to send a substantial force into Lookout Valley to not only strike at Hooker's Column, but also to assault the Browns Ferry Bridgehead. Bragg told Longstreet that if the troops from his own corps weren't enough, then a division from Breckinridge's corps was standing by, awaiting Longstreet's summons.
1: Longstreet didn't avail himself of those reinforcements. In fact, although it seems that, as far as his own troops, he originally intended to make the attack with both Jenkins' division and McClaw's division, in the end he only used Jenkins. It's not clear why Longstreet only used a single division, although it probably had to do with the time it would take that night to move more troops into position.
0: Longstreet also believed the federal lodgment at Browns Ferry was now too strong to be successfully assaulted. So, although Bragg was expecting a larger attack, Longstreet only intended to strike at Geary.
1: If Longstreet's plan was imperfect and not at all what Bragg expected, then Micah Jenkins' execution of it was equally flawed of his four available brigades, Jenkins sent only his own South Carolinians, now led by Colonel James Bratton, to attack Wahatchee. Two brigades, under Evander Law's command, were assigned the task of blocking the road to Brown's Ferry and preventing Howard's Eleventh Corps troops from coming to Geary's aid. Finally, Henry Benning's brigade of Georgians guarded the crossing at Lookout Creek To ensure a safe line of retreat for the rebels, should it be needed,
0: the movement of Bratton's South Carolinians took longer than expected. But shortly after midnight, the eighteen hundred men of his brigade brushed aside Geary's pickets and rolled forward through the darkness to assault the Federals encamped at Wahatchee.
1: When the Confederate attack rolled forward out of the darkness, John Geary, who was expecting trouble, was as prepared as he could be, with pickets well out. Geary wasn't pleased with his circumstances, with that three-mile gap between him and the rest of Hooker's force down the road. Hooker, however, was unconcerned. That afternoon, William Hazen, whose troops had floated down the river and seized the Browns Ferry Bridgehead, urged Hooker to place his entire force in, quote, a compact line across the valley. But, being confident the enemy would not disturb him, Hooker refused to change his dispositions, end quote.
0: Geary's position centered on a small rise of ground just west of the rail junction where the Trenton Railroad joined the Nashville and Chattanooga. Upon that piece of high ground, he stationed the four guns in the two sections of Captain Charles Atwell's Battery E, Pennsylvania Light Artillery. One of the sections was commanded by Geary's son, Lieutenant Edward Geary.
1: Geary stationed detachments of the 29th Pennsylvania at various points of the compass some distance from the camp as pickets. The other five regiments formed a loose defensive box, oriented mostly eastward, facing Lookout Mountain. Fires were forbidden, and the men had to make do with a supper of hardtack and cold coffee. Geary ordered the commanders of his two brigades, George Sears Green and George Cobham, to have the men sleep upon their arms, that is, with their muskets beside them.
0: The engagement opened when half a dozen companies of the 6th South Carolina in skirmish order made contact with companies C and G of the 29th Pennsylvania. First came a challenge, then a lone shot by a federal picket, and then recalled Private David Moat of the 29th, quote, A volley was immediately fired by the unknown command in front.
1: Even in the darkness, the Pennsylvanians could tell from the volume of fire that the Confederates badly outnumbered them. One of Moat's comrades called out, For God's sake, Dave, come on, the woods are full of rebs. And with that, the two companies, quote, ran down the slope toward the railroad.
0: The firing alerted Geary that the rebels were approaching from the north, and he acted quickly to get his force reoriented to face the enemy attack. When Bratton's South Carolinians struck, The 109th and 111th Pennsylvania faced in that direction, supported by Atwell's four cannon, but the 137th and 149th New York were still moving up on their left.
1: As Braddon pushed south through the darkness, the second South Carolina Rifles was on his left, guiding on the tracks of the Nashville and Chattanooga, with the first and fifth South Carolina extending the Confederate line of battle westward. On the Federal side, Colonel George Cobham, commanding Geary's 2nd Brigade, was with the 111th Pennsylvania, anchoring the apex of the Federal line, just in front of the small elevation where Atwell's guns were positioned. Cobham later said, quote, "'I could hear them advancing and ordered the men to lie down. As soon as the advancing lines could be seen through the darkness, I ordered the men to fire.' This was something they did not expect, as they supposed us all to be asleep.
0: Crashing out of the darkness, the volley from the 111th Pennsylvania halted the 2nd South Carolina rifles, which then fell back in some disorder. Their retreat brought the 1st and 5th South Carolina to a stop, but instead of also withdrawing, those two regiments stood their ground and returned the Yankees' fire.
1: The Confederate fire lashed the 137th New York, which was just finishing moving up, and the 149th New York, which was still hurrying to get into position. The 137th held, but the 149th broke, when, in a stroke of incredibly bad luck, it was struck not only by the enemy fire, but also hit by a stampede, as some of the mules from the division's wagon train were panicked by the noise and flashes of light and tore through the ranks of the hapless New Yorkers.
0: Despite the fact the darkness, as expected, was complicating command and control, Bratton now decided to attempt to overwhelm the federal position with a double envelopment, that is, trying to advance forces around both of the Yankees' flanks.
1: He sent the Hampton Legion around to the right outflank the Federals from the west, and he sent the Palmetto sharpshooters to the left across the railroad tracks to outflank the Federals from the east. And it almost worked, but the Hampton Legion was stymied when regimental adjutant James Mix of the 137th New York refused or bent back the regiment's two leftmost companies 90 degrees which thwarted the South Carolinians' efforts to outflank them.
0: Nor could the Palmettoes turn the federal right. The 149th New York had rallied and now rushed into position along the railroad embankment, facing east with the 78th New York coming up into line beside them. With the Confederate plans having been frustrated, Both sides now settled into a steady exchange of musket fire as they burned through the ammunition in their cartridge boxes.
1: The Federal artillery actually bore the worst of this fire. They shot off every round of canister in their caissons, but silhouetted as they were on the high ground with each gun flash, they were irresistible targets for the South Carolinians. Twenty-two of the forty-eight artillerymen were hit, 37 of their 48 battery horses were shot down. Atwa was badly wounded in the spine and hip, and 18-year-old Edward Geary was shot in the head and killed. Unknown to him, his promotion to captain had just been approved. Those orders were in John Geary's pocket that night when his son was killed.
0: Meanwhile, Colonel Martin Gary, commanding the Hampton Legion, still thought he saw a chance to roll up the Federals' flank. He later said, quote, I could have charged the battery with every indication of success, but I had advanced so fast that I had not communicated with Colonel Coward, commanding the fifth South Carolina. I sent a courier to notify him of my position and the advantage I had gained but before he could return, I received an order to withdraw my regiment.
1: That order came from John Bratton. The time was near 3 a.m., and the fighting at Waihatchee had been raging fiercely for perhaps two hours. Bratton was preparing to order a final effort to overwhelm Geary's position when he received alarming news that Evander Law's two brigades had been attacked and were falling back. So if Bratton didn't immediately break off the action at Wahatchee and follow suit, his whole command would be cut off.
0: With the next episode, we'll return to the fighting in Lookout Valley as Howard's 11th Corps troops get into the fight but we wanted to tack on a footnote to the end of this show, having to do with George Sears Green.
1: Some of you no doubt recognized Sears' name when we mentioned him as one of Geary's brigade commanders, since Sears played a prominent role in the fight for Culp's Hill at Gettysburg. Here at Wahatchee, shortly after the start of the Confederate night attack, the 62-year-old Sears was knocked from his horse by a bullet that dealt him a severe wound in the face and upper jaw. Amazingly, he managed to recover well enough to return to active duty in the Carolinas in the spring of 1865, although the lingering effects of the wound plagued him until his death in 1899 at the age of 97.
0: That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation, and our recommendation this time is The Shipwreck of Their Hopes, The Battles for Chattanooga, by Peter Cousins.
1: When paired with Cousins' This Terrible Sound, The Battle of Chickamauga, The Shipwreck of Their Hopes, The Battles of Chattanooga, will give you a well-written, complete, wall-to-wall coverage of these interconnected and important campaigns.
0: Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org.
1: Before we wrap things up, we want to give a shout out to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade and thank them for their support of the podcast. So a big thank you to Rosemary L., Joshua H., Daniel S., Robert H., Alan L., and Erica.
0: And thanks to Jonathan B., Josh K., Catherine F., Robert B., and William L. for their recent donations.
1: And thanks to Hubert for his very generous gift.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope that you join us again next time, but until then take care.
1: Thanks everyone. Bye.